Welcome to Off the Hook Arts Alcove podcast, a chance to dive into pieces by some of our beloved artists. The Arts Alcove features writers, musicians, painters, photographers, actors, and many more. We are excited to have you join us today. First, let's talk a little bit about Off the Hook Arts, which is a nonprofit based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Our mission is to provide free and low cost music performance education for students in the community, while at the same time cultivating a love of the performing arts through public concerts featuring world class musicians and interdisciplinary collaborations among the arts, sciences, and humanities. My name is Reb Nyman, and I'm the Arts Alcove Coordinator. Every semester, Off the Hook Arts takes on a team of interns across several fields of study to help them explore what their field might look like in the sector of arts nonprofits. Our intern, Dominic Dukovic, is joined today by the multi-talented Mary Beth Eversall to talk about her dynamic career as a vocalist, voiceover artist, actor, writer, and director. She gives us an inside look on how art heals and helps us process trauma. Mary Beth finds herself at the intersection of art and human connection. My name is Mary Beth Eversoll, and I am an actress, voiceover artist, musician, and writer-director of film and television um, and stage, I guess. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> so what, what, what was the first art you started with? Since you do so many, what was the first one? I have always been a musician and actress. So since like the age of like three, a uh, musician and actress first. And I started on the stage and I uh, actually pursued a career in opera for about 10 years and was able to travel the world doing that. And I have two degrees in music and uh, some theater experience as well. And then I um, actually, what led to Invisible Wounds, part of what led to it was that I lost my voice. And we've now figured out that it was because of a, a syndrome called spasmodic dysphonia. But at the time, it, it's very hard to diagnose and nobody knew what was going on. And so you, you can imagine an opera singer losing their voice right in the middle of their career. It's very challenging. Uh, and I had to figure out how to navigate a different course while still being creative and still being a performer. So that's what led me to on camera, film and television, because you usually don't have to speak as loud or and you don't have to sing on TV and film usually. And that's what led me to start doing that. I started taking a class in Denver and then cool stuff happened from there. I ended up living in Los Angeles for six years and performing as an actress out there. And that's really what got my screenwriting bug kind of going. I've also been a writer since I was little. 
won several awards for uh, prose writing, but I had never tried screenwriting until about three years ago. And then the Invisible Wounds Project kind of came out of my own personal traumas from my life. And then through our crowdfunding campaign, I just learned so many people had these stories to share and they did, but they just didn't have a platform in which to share them to help people know that we're not alone in, in our in PTSD trauma, you know, and uh, they just started writing me during the campaign. And I started thinking, well, maybe this isn't a short film and maybe this is a series. <laughs> um, and so I got permission from several people to be able to turn their stories into kind of a fictionalized version to really show with what goes on inside the mind of someone who's dealing with PTSD. It's different for everybody. It'll manifest in different ways, but I think showing a visual interpretation of what PTSD feels like and sounds like inside the person who's experiencing it is really key to helping other people who love them or support them and may not understand what's going on to start to understand this is why this is happening. So that's where that came from. <laughs> so you do writing and you do film. How how do you see that translation from going and writing to where really it can be whatever you want it to be? It doesn't have to be real to going to the camera, which everything has to fit in the camera. How How has that writing changed? Well, honestly, what's fun about the camera is that you can do anything you want. I mean, with with film, the the sky's the limit. Imagination is the limit because especially if you get really good people working on set with you that also have imaginations and collaborative minds, you can create any world you want. I mean, look at Peter Jackson and what he's done with Lord of the Rings, you know, it's and Harry Potter, the series, like all of those. It's just amazing what you can do and then capture that on the screen. And what the screen does, what the camera does is it captures different angles, you know, different different points of view, if you, if you want to put it that way. So I didn't find the transition difficult at all going from novel writing and short story writing to screenwriting, I felt it quite liberating because I'm an actress. And so I got to start using more dialogue and, um, and really just starting to think of like, how can we put this into action? And then it became a visual medium as well as, you know, well, I guess reading books is a visual medium as well, but you know, just a real, like looking at it kind of a thing. And I just thought that was cool. So the process wasn't too difficult. I think when you're a writer, you're a writer and uh, you just have to learn the format in which to put it, you know, but the story can still come out. What was the process like when you're writing about losing your voice? How, what, what did that look like? How did you write through that? How did you feel when you wrote that? So, you know, it's funny. I haven't written that episode yet and I really should. What I, I've had multiple traumas in my life and what came out was actually, um, I watched a series on Netflix called, I think it was called Bones or To the Bone. Maybe it was To the Bone. And it was about anorexia and I'm a recovered anorexic. And I almost died from it when I was 15 years old. I weighed 69 pounds, I was 5'8". And I was hospitalized for two months inpatient and then for a long period of time outpatient as well. Uh, and I grappled with that disorder for many, many years, even post hospitalization. It's just, not, it's like alcoholism. It doesn't really go away. You have to learn how to manage it. Um, and through that, that's what I wrote about that. When I finished watching that movie, I literally sat on my couch and wrote the entire script for what was then a short film of, of this. And I, I, at that point that I wrote it, I was in Los Angeles. And I had been through two major, very life-threatening car accidents that had injured me. So more PTSD on top of that. And 
I was kind of grappling with the PTSD and I, I needed to, I needed an outlet to get it out. And that's, that's how it came out. And what came out was the stuff that had led to more PTSD, you know? So I ended up writing basically my root cause of the initial PTSD. It was very cathartic for me. I wrote it in, how long did it take? It took me an hour to write the entire script. It just was like, you know, just fell out on the page. It has since then been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten because, you know, I, I did decide to turn it into a series. So it, the, that initial short film became the pilot, which was, it was too short for a pilot. So then I sent it into a lot of really respected writers and um, filmmakers and friends and just, and family and just said, could you give me your feedback? And it's so interesting what's happened through sharing that story because I didn't anticipate the response I got. I was just thinking, this is a piece of writing. I'm going to get a response. Then I can, you know, fine tune, whatever. But every time the person would come back and say, well, here's what I, here's my like editing or what my, my suggestions for how to expand on this. But thank you so much for sharing your story. I too have had an experience with PTSD, you know, or I've had this experience in my life. Everyone felt like they could open up and share with me about something they'd gone through that was difficult that people didn't understand. And I just, it was more fueled letting me know that this is something that needs to be made and needs to be put out to the masses so people know they're not alone and that there is hope and that there, there's, there are ways that you can get help you know, for the things that you're struggling with. Um, so that was a really cool process with the writing that I didn't expect. <laughs> so you're talking about some of your inspirations. What are some other things that inspire you to do your writing and your acting and all that? Or who are some people you pull from when you're acting, I should say, but. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I just watched one of them yesterday. Morgan Freeman is such a huge, I'm such a huge fan of him. Um, I do voiceover as well. So like he's such an inspiration for me. And he read for Fast Times at Richmond High, the table read. And I watched that and just, I want Morgan Freeman to read, like my husband, he said, we should have Morgan Freeman just dictate our life. Like, like just be the person who's saying, and Mary Beth moves into the kitchen, you know? <laughs> um, so I love him. I think he has always put across these, you know, down to earth, beautiful performances but they're bigger than life too, you know? And he's done it with such dignity and such respect for the craft. And I just absolutely love that. Uh, one of my other influences, interestingly enough, is Drew Barrymore. I love her because she's been there. She's gone through crap, you know? And she came out the other side and she made a production company for women that was to help lift up and boost up other women and my, you know, people in the minority that weren't getting their voices heard in a positive light. And that's, you know, that's my whole thing is I want people's stories to be told. And this, I want, I want to be able to tell the stories realistically, you know, we do have to go down into the depths in order to understand how it really is, you know, but then we got to provide a sense of hope too. And that's kind of what I what I like to do as an artist is to, you know, present the reality, but then also present the hope and, and the inspiration to to get better and to heal and all of that. So, yeah. How, how do you handle those conversations when people are talking about their PTSD and want to share their story? 
you just listen, you know, you listen. And if you can relate in some way, you you relate with your own experience. But really, I think people, I learned this, I've learned a lot about PTSD. My sister's actually a PTSD psychologist. um, So I've learned a lot from her too. But really, it just comes down to letting the person share their story. And however many times they need to share their story in order for it to become less dominating in their life. And there's a various, there's a myriad of therapies that can help with that. But really when it comes down to it, if you're a friend or a family member, just listening. And then if you feel like maybe they do need some help beyond what you can give them, suggesting, I know someone, maybe you could talk to them, you know? Um, But yeah, it's, I find that just listening is usually a good start. So going from acting to voiceover acting, how does, how does that acting change? What, what does that look like? Um, it becomes more, you're definitely, I, I always with voice, cause with voiceover acting, you're in your, you know, your little booth by yourself <laughs> and you have to imagine everybody that you're talking to. Usually I try to make it so that I'm, uh, talking to one person. Cause what, with acting on screen and in stage, you're you're acting to a scene partner normally, unless it's a commercial where you're talking to the audience. But you're usually you have your scene partner in place, or you have your audience, and you can go from a single person to a, the mass, the masses, and you're talking to the masses. But with voiceover, you really have to hone it to you're talking to one person because it makes it sound more natural and relatable. If you try to visualize that you're talking to 50,000 people, it's really hard to kind of make it feel like you're connecting, you know? So I always try to picture my best friend and like I'm telling her the story um, or my husband, he's, a, he's one I picture as well. It takes a lot of imagination, but then you really do fall back on the fundamentals of just normal acting, you know? Um, you, still, you still build your character, you still go through the dialogue, you find the beats, you know, it's, it's very similar you just, your audience is different. So, yeah. Throughout your artwork, do you see a character you like to return to? So I'm writing a novel right now and there's um, a particular, I don't, there's no title for it yet. I don't know, but it's about uh, reincarnation and also it's got a bunch of themes. It's about motherhood and children and reincarnation. I know that sounds like they don't go together, but <laughs> but they do. And there is a particular, these are once again, based on an experience that I had with a past life regression therapist, where I actually believe that I've lived three other past lives. And I know, woo-woo, it's crazy. Um, but it, I've had too much happen in my life and in my dreams to believe otherwise. And something has been drawing me to, pulling me really to to write this story. So there's a character in there that I relate very closely to. Um, her name is Rosamund, and she was from 16th century Italy. <laughs> so, but she she went through life. Um, she had a very difficult life, and uh, experienced some abuse, and then witnessed other people experiencing abuse, and then made it her goal to save them. And she ended up saving hundreds of people. I relate to that. <laughs> Because I feel like somewhat through my art, somehow maybe I'm helping more people than just, you know, the people that are in my close circle. Is, so. is, is that the point of creation is to help other people or is it to really help yourself through these situations? I think both. I think it's both. I really believe that art was was instilled in us 
to heal, to help heal, and also to just feel, you know, to, to help you feel your emotions, whether it be joy or sadness or grief or, you know, um, excitement, any of that, because we use art in celebration, but we also use it in grief and we use it to get through pain. And, you know, when I was in the hospital, they used art therapy and music therapy. And that was, and I have multiple times, because I, I forgot to mention, I teach voice, piano and acting. Um, I have a studio and in working with my students, so many times I've witnessed them become more of themselves through their through the art that they're creating, whether it be having to work through an issue or just becoming more confident, you know, and it really has been like a therapy to them. So as it has been for me, um, you know, the whole reason I, I've loved film and television my whole life and the whole reason I think I went in that direction and ended up ultimately finding what I love the most as far as being an actress goes um, was when I would sit in the movie theater and something would strike me so hard that I would sit afterwards once the credits were done and I either I'd be bawling or I'd be smiling, but it would make me feel something and just almost change my perspective. You know, it would be with me when I left the theater and it would make me think and reevaluate. And that, that's what I think art is used for. It should be used for. So, yeah. I agree with that. How, how do you decide which medium you're going to use when you come up with an idea or a thought? Frankly, it comes to me. Um, I often, I don't decide unless it's an assignment and then, you know, unless it's like a deadline or something, then of course I'm like, okay, yes. <laughs> um, but my purely creative projects that are like my passion projects, honestly, it just comes to me. So um, the other day I, I came across a writing that I thought was some of my poetry and I reread it. We did, we moved back from Los Angeles last year and I hadn't gone through some of my papers yet. And I, I was going through my papers and I was like, oh, this is, this is a poem that I must've written or something. And I put it off to the side and then I read it yesterday. And I was like, that's not a poem. These are song lyrics. And so now I'm like, ah, I need to write a song. So that's my next venture after the novel is finished. <laughs> so that, that is awesome. So what, what was your time in, in LA like and why, why did you come back to Colorado? So my time in LA was, it was really great. And it, there were times that it sucked. <laughs> so um, as I think most people who live in LA would tell you, I think uh, what, what brought us back was honestly the cost of living. It just was, it got to be so hard um, and it got to a place where I wasn't even really able to focus on my art because I was having to work just to survive, to pay the rent. Um, and that's not what I do art. That's not, that's not who I am. You know, I have to create. So, um, I did have success as an actress out there and somewhat as a writer, I started Invisible Wounds out there, actually a really successful crowdfunding campaign and table read while I was there. Um, but we had already decided to move back here. My husband is from here and we lived here for 10 years before we moved to LA. So, um, and we also had a house that we could come back to. <laughs> so we were like, uh, things were starting to move in the direction of, um, this was be before the pandemic, but in the TV and film world, things were starting to move where it was self-tape first round for first round auditions. And I just one day was like, why am I killing myself here if I'm gonna be self-taping for the first round anyway? 
you know, I can write anywhere. I can do music anywhere. And now it's beginning to be where I can act anywhere. You know, I can do film and television wherever I go. And of course I can do stage. So, so we decided to move. And honestly, I worked more last year as an actress for TV here than I had for the last year in Los Angeles that we were there. So I was like, well, all right, <laughs> you know, and then of course the pandemic hit. So then everything shut down. But in the last week, and a half, I'd say, things are starting to pick up. I've had seven auditions. Now everyone does self-tape, so it's nice, you know? Um, it was a really good move for us. Well, what is it like doing an audition over the camera, especially doing seven so quickly? How, how, how is that changing your character up so much? Um, so it doesn't change anything you do with your acting. It just changes, again, it changes your kind of where you're looking. So if you went into an audition where you were a live audition you might have some more space to work with not much though because like even they still have a camera on you when you go into the audition so you're still having to either play to the camera or to the reader and it's not much different on the self-tape it's just that i'd say the biggest difference is that you don't get to have redirects whereas in the live room the casting director might say that was great now can you try it this way right off the bat Whereas now you're your own director and sometimes that's really good because you can do as many takes as you want, but sometimes it's not good because then you have no idea what they're actually looking for, you know, and, you know, in the room, the casting director can kind of steer you in a direction of what they're looking for if they see that you have talent, but they're starting to catch on and I, more and more casting directors are now asking for earlier submissions so that they can give you feedback in case they want you to try it a different way. So it's just, I think everyone right now is just, it's a big learning curve. A lot of people have not done this before this way. I was fortunate enough to, when I moved to LA, I wanted to keep my studio with me. So I actually switched to online teaching when we moved to like the year before we moved to LA. So I've been teaching online for almost 10 years now. So it wasn't a big transition for me, but I actually have been able to help other people make that transition. And I think it's just a matter of everyone just catching up, learning it all and, and getting there. I think we'll get it figured out sooner or later. <laughs> that, that's impressive. You started before the curve. Um, so yeah, obviously you're a director, a writer and an actor. So when you, how do you separate yourself and know that when I'm an actor, I do this, even though you have a director background and a writer background? Um, so directing is newer for me. It's just been in the past like year and a half that I've really kind of dipped my toes in that. And I have a lot to learn. So <laughs> I almost hesitate to call myself a director sometimes because I'm like, um, I don't know as much as that person, but, um, but I have learned that as a director, you rely on your team, you know, you have the vision, but then you rely on your team of experts to help bring that vision to life. So I've always been really good and I did direct some stage stuff. So I had a little bit of that background, um, but it's, you, you just, if you're a good organizer and you know how to delegate and, and work with people, then being a director is okay. Um, I, I find that it actually helps me to be an actress and a director because there are a lot of directors out there and this is, I'm not trying to put anyone down or knock their style, but there are a lot of directors out there that because they're so caught up in the technical aspect and trying to get the perfect shot, the directing the actors kind of falls by the wayside. They expect you to just show up and be able to do your part. Um, that's why a lot of actors will show up with their acting coaches to set because they need someone who can give them feedback. Um, I have found, and I've been given this feedback by the actors I've worked with, that I'm a good uh, actor's director. 
So because I understand that point of view, I'm able to direct them better to get the performance that I want, you know, um, and to get them to be comfortable enough to feel like they're the ones creating it because they are, you know, there's a difference between a director saying, do this and do it this way and move here and do all of this and you deciding, okay, and collaborating, like, here's what I'm doing. This is this, okay, could I add this? Yes, let's do that, you know? So it has to be a collaboration to a certain, my belief, to a certain extent. Um, and from the writing perspective, I love the writing perspective because that's the blank slate. That's what gives the director and the actors their jobs, right? Um, that's where I get to be the most imaginative and I really love it. Um, I'd say that with, with acting, you get the you get the imagination part where you're coming up with the character and the backstory and all of that. And with the directing, you're you're creating, you're taking the world from the page and putting it into real life. That's where they get to use their imagination. But the original person creating it is the writer. I feel like writers don't get enough credit, honestly. <laughs> so um, because they're the ones that are creating the world initially, you know. Um, and to that, so to that extent, I'm I am a big proponent for trying to stay true to what the writer's intention was, especially when you're adapting it to film. Um, there's a lot of people that will change it up a lot when they're adapting, and you know you do have to cut when you go from like say a book to film because just length, you know. But you don't have to you don't have to change the world so much that it's no longer the book, you know, mm -hmm. or that world. Um, so yeah, I think having all three perspectives has been very helpful in helping to create the world in the projects that I have, so. How do you overcome the uh, Im imposter syndrome when you know you, you do so <laughs> many different things and you're in so many different alleys? That's a story of my life, <laughs> imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, I've, I've come to a place where I have convinced myself to trust my talents for a long time I didn't. And I didn't share them with the world, you know, it was really just I did musical theater and then opera. And I thought that that's where I that those were my lanes and I had to stay in them. And it was just as the actress and singer, you know, and dancer. Um, but as I realized and, and started collaborating with fellow uh, creatives, realizing that they have multiple facets of creativity, it gave me permission to kind of you know, share my multiple facets of creativity. I've been writing poetry since I was a kid. I've been writing novels since I was a kid, short stories, you know. Um, I was always good at being a leader. So that's what eventually I was able to fall into directing because that's easy, you know, going from leading a group or an organization to leading, you know, directing a film or a stage play. It's natural, natural transition. Um, it was just learning how to trust my instincts, especially in the film world, that's been really hard because there is no like manual to tell you how to <laughs> how to produce a film or like create a film and actually get it made. So um, I'd say I still somewhat have imposter syndrome when it comes to directing um, or like the producer side. I don't call myself a producer. I've had to do producer type roles, but I don't call myself that because there's just too much that I haven't learned yet to be able to do that. You know, but as a director, writer, actor, and you're doing this project, this is your project, you have to somewhat know that stuff or know how to hire the people that know how to do that, that are trustworthy. Um, so I, what ultimately happened was I started getting a circle of people around me that I trust that have different expertise 
and um, kind of gleaning the information from them, collaborating with them and figuring it out. So. Um, what What is it, obviously, most place, most things are dominated by men, but definitely the movie world is. How have you been able to come out as a woman, especially through the Me Too movement that happened while you were in LA? How has that affected you and how have you gone through that? Um, I consider myself very lucky to have been in Los Angeles when that happened. I was a part of those protests and um, I, I've had a sexual abuse experience personally, so um, it hit very close to home for me. Um, and it's uh, something that, you know, I think we're, we as women are still, we're still in the process. I think we're going to be for a while, but I am very lucky to have been transitioning to writing and directing when that movement happened, because a lot of doors started to open that were not open before. Um, and even still, they're very hard to get through. Um, I lose out a lot to my fellow men, but um, but I'd slowly but surely, I'm finding that more and more people are willing to work with women. And I can't believe I'm even saying this in the 21st century, but like, yeah. Um, and I've always known that myself and, and my fellow women are intelligent, strong, compassionate, creative human beings that are able to do just as much as men are, you know, sometimes in a different and even maybe better way, <laughs> you know. Um, but the film industry, it's been it's been a it's been a hard road and it's still a hard road. But now we have what I call these these warriors, these women warriors within the film industry, like Reese Witherspoon and Drew Barrymore. Um, I have uh, there's a woman that I follow on Twitter. Let me let me pull up her name because I want to mention her. Um, two women, actually. So Jen McGowan, she's a director in Hollywood. And um, uh, I have a friend, Victoria Denault. She's a novelist. And uh, the other woman, there's one other woman. Where is she? Um, she's a Latina, Edith. Edith, Latina, beautiful writer, uh, screenwriter. And she goes by Edith D on Twitter. So if you want to look her up, um, Edith Drawd. But these women have been, I mean, Jen has created a group called The Glass Ceiling. It's specific for women in the industry who have had success and are literally collaborating to help each other out and boost each other up. I think that's amazing. Um, I would love, I think ultimately one of my dreams, and I haven't shared this with very many people, <laughs> um, one of my ultimate dreams is to have my own like successful production company. I have I have an LLC, MB, MBE Productions, so I guess technically I have one, but like I would love to have a company like Drew, Mar Drew Barrymore has, you know, where she gets to act in the films that she produces, she produces, she directs, she writes even sometimes. And she also hires other women to do the same and people of color and, you know, people with different, you know, gender fluidity, all of those groups of people she hires in that. That's a dream of mine to be able to do the same. Um, another dream of mine, and this didn't really come to fruition until I moved back here, I've discovered there's quite a, there a invested, small but invested film community here in Northern Colorado. And um, my friend, Jesse Nyander is filmmaker. He, he started um, NoCo Filmmakers and he does the Horse Tooth International Film Festival. Um, 
and he is a huge proponent for bringing more film to Colorado, and specifically Northern Colorado and Denver. And um, I am just a huge fan, and I want to have that production company here. I want us to be able to be a state that draws the arts like that, you know? Um, I don't know, that's a vision dream of mine. <laughs> that's a very cool dream. Um, because obviously art stays around forever. So everything you've created with your name on it, you'll re be remembered for that. And you want to be remembered yeah. for your production company, but at the end of the day, who, how do you want Mary Beth to be remembered? Who, what do you want people to define you as? I want to be remembered as the person who shared the stories that needed to be told, you know, that helped people heal through my storytelling. Yeah. Cool. I like that. So, uh, what have, what have you been up to during quarantine? Ah, <laughs> um, well, writing a novel. Um, also, uh, thankfully, because I taught online, I have not had to transition too much. So I actually, um, again, very lucky I was able to add students during the quarantine because more people started looking to online teaching. Um, so I actually started last year in person. Uh, I started a group. I basically started the film Productive, a film um, class side of Lottie Da Performing Arts, which is in Fort Collins. Um, and when they had to close their structure, which made me really sad, um, they've gone into hibernation um, because they were more a more theater-based group. But we had started to build this film side of it. And thankfully, with their help, I was able to continue and do um, a couple group classes. So I taught Film Acting 101 um for several people adults and teens and then the way the way i collaborated with jesse is i actually created a class called let's shoot a short film and i wrote two short films because we thought we were going to do adult and teen but then we ended up combining when the pandemic hit um so we actually taught all the students virtually how to act on camera and how to use the equipment to shoot their own short film basically and we were going to do that as a group in person and like have them be the crew as well as the actors you know and go through the casting process and we ended up having to reevaluate and, and take everything virtual so we cast and then had them learn their parts and then we sent them the equipment so we had runners who took their equipment to their house um and then they would and you know like sanitize and all that they we would talk to them on zoom to set up the equipment and then we would have, you know, they had like their parents or a spouse or something kind of help to turn the equipment on and off while they acted on the short film. And then I would direct via Zoom for the short film. So, um, and we ended up creating a short film called Library. And it's actually currently been submitted to 13 film festivals. And we are, um, it, I just heard back from one the other day that we're in the final round to be picked to be selected and there's no guarantee with those but it's kind of cool to get the feedback we've gotten so far um and to provide it was a comedy and it really i think was a really wonderful respite for those who were part of the class and then also those who've watched it like the, some of the feedback was this is this is such a funny film and thank you for you know creating a light in such a dark time and it was like okay this is cool you know so there was that um 
I also create, I taught a group class, um, ongoing scene study class for acting. And um, like I said, I found those lyrics the other day. So I think I'm going to write a song. Oh, I have my music students. Um, I've done two recitals with them via Zoom. And one's coming up next week, Halloween recital. And I actually had them do just kind of stemming off that let's shoot a short film idea in June. I was like, I should do this with my music students. So I did let's write a song. And I taught them all how to write basically eight bars of music. And now I'm working on putting all of those eight bars from all 25 of my students into one song. And that's going to be the studio song. So, and then, you know, my producer for Invisible Wounds and I, we've been hard at work um, trying to find funding to shoot this teaser. Um, Cause we're going to then use the teaser to help pitch the whole series to, um, cause the series, I want to do it right. And I want to be able to pay people and, you know, a normal series costs anywhere between 200 and a million to make an episode. Ours is sitting right at 250,000 for each episode. Um, some of them are 200,000 and that's, a, that's largely due to their special effects. There's a lot of special effects and makeup special effects as well, but I can't cut that because that's the inside of the mind stuff. And that's the whole point of the series. So we're doing this teaser as a part of the packet to then go pitch and try to get the series picked up. Um, so we actually, we applied for the Colorado Film and Video Association grants and we got it. So um, it's not enough to cover what we need to shoot the teaser, but it's a start. And now we're looking for donations, investors and grants <laughs> to try to get it shot. So that's where we're at. And so we've been working on that too. So you seem to adapt really well to going online with everything, shooting a whole short film with it. How have you seen your direct abilities and like not being in person? Has that affected at all what you want to do with your creative mind? Honestly, I think it's made me more creative because <laughs> you've had to like think about workarounds, right? You know, with that group class, like we were ready to go and then the pandemic hit. So then we delayed. And then we, thank God we delayed. We needed that month to really reevaluate. Like, how are we, how are we going to do this logistically? Like huge props to the teachers of the public schools and private schools right now, because teaching a group of children, teens or adults is really hard. <laughs> it's very different than teaching one-on-one, -on -one, which is what I do a lot, you know? Um, so I'd say that the transition as far as going online I was, I think I was more willing than a lot of people to meet the challenge just because I'd been teaching online for so long and I kind of already, already gone through the learning curve of learning the software and learning how to do setups and stuff like that. Um, and I was confident in my ability to do that. It was just more transitioning all the group classes and figuring out, okay, logistically, how do we get the equipment to them? How do we stay safe and sanitize and blah, 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 you know? So yeah, but I feel like I adapted pretty well and then it's definitely made me put my thinking cap on a few times. So does, does creative things come to you or do you sit there and really try to make, make stories? Um, usually, like I said, it comes to me often. It'll come to me in its full format and then I have to like quickly write it down. So I don't forget, like write down the outline. And then a lot of times, especially when it comes to writing, um, I get the outline written down, like my notes on my phone has like all these just little sporadic like ideas. And then I'll go back and I'll reread them when I'm ready, when I have, I can sit down and actually write. And I'll be like, 
well, that's a good idea. Okay, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking there. Okay, yeah. And then I'll start stringing it all together. But usually the the basic idea, the concept comes to me. Um, and then I'll fill in the gaps. So. Very cool. Um, yeah. How, so how, how did you hear about Off the Hook Arts? Through my student, my adult student, Jeanette Hoffman. She's a huge um, supporter of you guys. And she actually took me to some events that you guys had last year before we had to go shut down everything. And um, then I didn't know about the Arts Alcove. And then she texted me, she was like, have you submitted your information to this yet? Have you, you know, I'm like, what, what? I didn't even know. And she was just like, you need to do this now. And then she's kind of been my uh, cheerleader the whole time. So she's one of my adult piano students and she's become a very good friend over the years. So that's how I found out about it. <laughs> that's awesome. So what is it like teaching from, from your youngest student to your oldest student? Do you switch it up a lot or do you keep it pretty similar? Um, you, you do have to um, customize how you teach. With, even within the same age range, you know, everyone learns differently. Um, some of my students have actual disabilities. Um, so I have to, um, especially with those kiddos, like I have one who has autism. He has a team on his side, like his mom, and he's also got a, a para that works with him. And so we as a team, you know, we'll chat and then figure out, and you kind of have to just learn how to learn the terms you're supposed to use and, you know, how to keep their attention. I would say keeping the attention of my young ones is, is a challenge, um, especially now that they're online for everything. Like it used to be, they were just online for 30 minutes for their piano lesson. They could keep their attention. By the time I get them now at the end of an all day remote learning, and then they come to me for piano, they're just like, you know, so uh, definitely has caused me to put my thinking cap back on to figure out, okay, how do I keep their attention? But it was the same when they were in person, you know, like if it was a day, it was after the end of school and they're tired and they just want to go home and have a snack. I got to figure out how to keep their attention so that I can teach them this knowledge, you know, and make it fun and make it interesting. And um, I find that with my adults, uh, often they want to dive more deeply into the technique side and they want to they want to really understand what they're playing and why they're playing it you know whereas the kids are just like let's have fun <laughs> so um so yeah there's there's a difference but there's also just you have to customize it for each student so yeah uh, sorry um I just got to make sure I hit all my questions. You had really um, good questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm trying. As this is exciting. You have so many different roles. You know, you're like the James Franco. Ah, but you, you even you. do more than James Franco. It's kind of crazy. He's a really cool guy. So I got to see um, some of his actors performing at UCLA um, with a play that he had written. And it was really cool. So, yeah. He what, what is it like being in circles with like famous people you read in magazines? It's so, okay. So I will say this when you're a professional, whatever role you're in, you're there to do your job. So, you know, everyone's there, they're focused, they're doing their job and it's a very collaborative spirit. So we're all just human, you know, and usually that's how it is and you're good. I will say I've been starstruck twice in my working, um, I got to be directed by George Clooney and I didn't know I was going to be because I had started his background and then I got bumped to featured for his film Suburbicon. And, um, 
And I thought that the first AD was going to direct me because he had been directing me all day. And he sat me in my position next to one of the supporting leads. And he's like, I'll be right back. You know, just be ready for some direction. And I said, sure. And then I was talking to her and she stopped talking and I, I felt a hand on my back. And then I heard George Clooney's voice and I was like, that George Clooney. And like, she was like, and I was like, okay. And I turned and like, so man, he's so charming. He is exactly like he appears. Um, and he was talking and like, it's the only time that he was talking. And I swear I heard wah, 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 wah. Cause I was like, that's George Clooney. That's George Clooney. He's touching my back right now. Um, and so he said his direction and I said, uh-huh. And he was like, do you need me to say that again? And I was like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes. And he said, happens all the time. <laughs> like, oh my God. Um, and the only other time that happened to me was I, I was in American Sniper just as background, but they, again, put me in a featured role. Um, so they had me sitting for a setup. Uh, they were re repositioning the camera, but they had to have me and the two leads that were in front of me sitting in our place so they could set it up correctly. And um, Clint Eastwood came and sat down next to me and because he was the one setting the camera, you know. So and he, he just turned to me and he was just like, well, hi. And I was like, Hello, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so um, it can be surreal sometimes. But what's cool about it is you see how they are as real human beings. Um, I got to be a stand-in for uh, American Horror Story, and I got to be on set with Kathy Bates all day. And watching her and how she interacted with every single member of the crew and cast, she stopped every single person, and she would say, Thank you so much. You know, well, how are you today? What's your name? And what are you doing on set today? And, she, and they'd tell her and she would say, you know, thank you so much for what you're doing. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. And like she did the same with me, you know, and like I just was really cool to watch her and how she interacted with everybody when she's in a position where you don't have to, you know, um, she could have just shut herself off. And believe me, I met some of those, too. But um it's really cool. Um, Rob Lowe is similar to that. He even came and met all the, he shook hands with like every person on set. There were like 50 people, actors on set that day. And he came and he was saying hi to everybody. Just a really joyful, happy guy. So um, I saw, I'll say sometimes you get star stars, starstruck, sorry. Um, it happens a lot easier when you're just background and just observing because you don't really meet the person and you're like, oh my God, that's, that's that person, you know? Um, when you get more uh, in, in a, I wouldn't say higher rank, but when you get into the places where you're interacting with them on a more personal level, it just becomes more about you're the professional, they're a professional, you're there to do your job, they're a human being, you have good conversation, you know? So, so oh, sorry. Um, no, you thought. <laughs> That I love Rob Lowe, first of all, but um, <laughs> he's so cool. He's such a great guy. Doing, you know, working on American Horror Story, working on American Sniper, how is acting with PTSD and like seeing those things versus writing about PTSD? How how is that different? One is very and well, they're both internal. I would say they are different. Um, it depends. I would say it depends on because I was I happened to be in a scene that wasn't like wartime or anything like that. 
Um, it was a funeral. Now, I would say if I had been a soldier that had lost friends in the war and I had been in that scene, it would have affected me far differently because it is very realistic. You are literally sitting at a funeral <laughs> with an American flag and they're, they're punching their um, their pins into the coffin and, you know, and someone's crying and it's it's reality. You know, in an imaginary circumstance, it's reality for the actors that are on set. Um, when you're writing, you are coming from a very deep personal place usually, especially writing about PTSD. I almost feel like you can't write about PTSD unless you've experienced it because it's such a personal deep thing that causes a lot of different emotions that you can't really capture unless you've experienced it. So um, I would say, you know, your body doesn't recognize the difference between when the tiger's in the room and when it isn't. So your PTSD can be triggered from either one. I just feel like one is a little bit more of a, a inside deep personal thing. Whereas when you're acting, a lot of times the triggers can come from external things. So, yeah. And then when, when you jot down your ideas, cause I have, I have this problem myself where I'll write something down and then it will make no sense. And I just, it's just a bunch of jumbles. So how do you turn your quick idea into a full fledged novel? Like that's insane. So I started labeling my ideas. <laughs> so I'll say novel idea and then I'll go, you know, um, even in the novel I'm writing now, if I have to come to a stopping point, but I know what I want to do next, I put in red typing. You're going to do this next. Here's who you're, here's the characters you need to bring in. This is the part of the storyline you need to arc. I also have a, a notebook where I do, um, I do the bubble mapping where it's like, you got the character in the center and then you do all the line out in another bubble. Like here's their, this is their relationship with their mom. Here's a relationship with their dad, you know? So I have that also for reference, but yeah, I have to label my notes because I didn't used to do that. And I would just jot down, like, she says this. And then I come up and be like, who says what? <laughs> what is this in regards to? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, now I, now I actually, I have like this organized, like, this is for my novel. This is for my next screenplay. Here's what I need to do with invisible wounds, you know? So yeah. And the notes app is really cool on iPhone because you can do that. You can have like different notes that are, I'm sure every note application is that way. So <laughs> Um, and then over, over your career, you've had a long one from when you were young to now, what is one, one thing that you would want to share with people about what you've learned? Sorry, that don't was give a, up. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Can, can you say that again? My bad. Yeah. Don't give up. If you have it, if something inside of you is drawing you to do a thing, a creative thing, don't stop just because someone says you're not good enough to do it. Don't stop because someone says you, it'll never get made. Don't, because the ultimately the only person who can get the project made or done is you. And everybody else is just the peanut gallery, you know? And it's and it will be hard and you will come across obstacles. But if you're being pulled to do something, to make something, create something, and you can't live unless you create it, then don't stop. When, that. when, when you do create it and the internet mm. is sometimes a harmful place and you do get those mm. bad reviews, how does that make you feel? Um, so I like, I, I used to take them very personally and I, I can liken this more too, cause I haven't had a ton of bad reviews. Fingers crossed. I know it's coming. Um, but I can say that I've had a lot of rejection in regards to auditioning and stuff 
So that's one way that can really relate. And in the process of sending in my invisible wound script to get actual feedback from actual writers, filmmakers that are at the professional level, and I'm actually asking them or paying them to give me feedback. Um, there, a lot of times that kind of feedback, even though it might be perceived as negative, is really just constructive criticism. And after I get over my initial, oh, oh, you know, then I go back and read it again. I'm like, oh, okay, I see what they were getting at. You know, like, and then it's like, then you get to decide, do I take this for a grain of salt? Or is there some amount of truth in this that really I don't want to face, but I need to face about this project and maybe this will help make it better, you know? Um, that's that's very hard for anyone, I think, to face because it's basically facing your ego and saying, ego, have a seat. I'm going to go ahead and take this constructive criticism and make this project even better. Um, and you understanding that most people, most people come from a place of constructive criticism as opposed to just bashing. You know, there are the bashers. I had I've had a couple uh people in audition settings that were just straight up bashers and they were known for it and i went in knowing that and those are the people you just ignore you know and you have to you just have to stick with what your gut is telling you you know and don't be closed off to receiving constructive criticism or advice but then you get to choose if you use it you know listen to it hear it and decide if it's for you but always 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 go with your gut um, so in Hollywood, there is a understanding or like a notion of directors over sexualizing women in their movies and shows. So coming from you, how, have you experienced that? How have you kind of fought against that? Because now actresses are stepping up and saying, I'm not going to mm -hmm. dress like that. Megan Fox did that. So how, how have you kind of seen that? And also as a second part of that question, how have you seen power been given to the actress and to the, everyone else in production? Okay, good question. Um, my very first audition for film was a guy who wasn't going to pay me, but wanted me to be topless for three quarters of his 90 minute feature film. Um, saying that it was because I was a beautiful character and that the character's role called for her to be topless. It didn't. Um, and he tried to make it like a historical context. Well, women back in these days would often walk around topless. And I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> like, I'm a, I'm a history buff. I know that's not true. <laughs> so, um, and I almost took the role before I knew that it was going to be three quarters nudity. But I was considering nudity for my, my first film roll out the gate. And I'm so glad I said no because that would have defined me for the rest of my career. And that's unfortunate that that is that way for women still, because a guy can take his shirt off or maybe show his butt or whatever, and it's not gonna define his career for the rest of his life. He's not gonna be known as the slut or the guy that slept with someone and then showed his butt, you know? That part of Hollywood, unfortunately, I don't think has changed much. Um, so it really comes down to the actress to be firm in her morals and what she is willing to do or not do. And, you know, you have to, it almost comes down to a case by case basis. If within the, the world and the film and the character, nudity is necessary and you see why it's in there and it's for a brief second and not gratuitous, then maybe yes. But most often I find that nudity isn't necessary <laughs> for us to get the point, you know? Um, 
and over-sexualization is not necessary for us to get the point, you know? So um, I think that the change of over-sexualizing women is going to come from women being the one to direct the stories and write the stories and show that that it's possible to write stories just like men write them without over-sexualizing the women. Um, That hasn't happened totally yet, but it is happening. There is a change happening, and there's a lot of women who have started standing up for themselves and standing up for each other and starting to produce and direct and write things of quality content that don't do that. And, you know, but still get the same point across, you know? Um, It comes down to us standing up for ourselves. And even when it's really scary and someone seems like they have a lot of power and is very threatening, you have to understand that you always have a voice and a say and walk away. If it's not for you, you have to. And you know who I learned that from? I actually learned that from my my first acting coach, Aaron Spicer in Los Angeles. And he was adamant about, you know, some roles call for sexuality and that just happens. But you should never be made to feel uncomfortable on set. And if you are, you walk. And if you don't feel like you're getting paid what you're supposed to get paid, you negotiate with your agent. And if they can't do it, then you say no to the role. If you feel uncomfortable on set at any point, like you are, like your life is being threatened or your mental state is being threatened, you walk. Because even though it feels like your career is going to end, that's usually not the case. Almost never, you know, and usually it becomes, you become better for it. Um, I would say as far as how the industry is changing towards it, very, 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 very slowly, but they are starting to change. I really love the fact that, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, Intimacy specialists are now required to be on set in Hollywood if someone has to be nude or if there has to be some kind of intimate scene. Now they have to have an, they're required to have an intimacy specialist. And I really would love the other states to follow suit. (laughs) Um, That would be great if we could have that um, just because it would, it would be a directive that then all the indie film people and all that would know that that's what they need to follow. And it would really just prevent a lot of uncomfortable situations in my opinion. So, and also through creating art about it. I had a friend who just had a film um, and, you know, she shared about her experience doing the film itself as a short film about being on set and being being hit with the uh, last second, oh, hey, you need to take your top up top off and just go ahead and do it, you know, and, and being with a small crew is like, oh, it's a small crew trying to make it seem like, oh, it's fine. But she was totally uncomfortable. And that film was about that. And she did an amazing job. Um, Jessica Siqueiros uh, is her name. And she did an amazing job. She's a writer and director too, but she's also an actress. And um, it was really hard to watch because we, women, we've all experienced that. Um, so it was very uncomfortable, but it was meant to be that way. And that's the kind of film we need to make right now in order for change to happen. And that's what I mean when I say I want to make films that show the reality and then provide a sense of hope, you know? So, um, yeah. That's such a thin line between showing the reality and then maybe going over the top, you know, like journalism, they talk Mm -hmm. about the the breakfast um, deal, which is if someone can't eat their breakfast while they look at it, then you probably shouldn't show it. But obviously 
the reality of a lot of these circumstances, you probably can't eat breakfast no matter what. That's just how it is. So how in a movie do you show this without... I, don't know, just... I think again, I think it's a case by case basis. You know, if it's something regarding PTSD, which is all inside, you have to show in an imaginary way, maybe sometimes or in a flashback, that kind of thing. You do have to show it in order to make people understand the depth at which the pain has been caused and what has caused it. But then you also have to go to the extreme on the other side and provide that amount of hope. Uh, before you end the film <laughs> you don't have to but in my opinion you should <laughs> so um because if you're if you just leave people with reality and nothing else why do we watch films and television you know we, we watch it to connect but we also watch it to escape or provide a sense of relief or hope you know and we want the good guy to win we want to see the person persevere because in reality sometimes that doesn't happen or we don't know how to make it happen. You know, films and TV provide that for us, you know, but I also don't think, now I love a good chick flick, okay? I love my rom-coms, I love Disney, I love all of that, but I think that there is a time and a place where it is necessary to show reality so that people can understand maybe a certain faction of other people that they may not understand, you know? I, in my own experience with PTSD, I found that even my closest people to me didn't understand what I was going through. No matter how hard I tried to explain it, they just didn't get it and they couldn't understand why I couldn't just pull myself up by the bootstraps and move forward. And what, what I have learned about PTSD, because, and the reason some of them didn't get it is because they had gone through a similar or the same experience and it hadn't affected them that way. And what I learned with PTSD is, you can have 10 people in a room that have the same same exact experience and one's going to walk out with PTSD and the other nine won't. And it's it's just how your brain reacts to, you know, to a trauma. And um, it's not something that we can predict. It's not something they're trying to get to a point where they can, but it's not something that we know how to predict yet. Um, we haven't, you know, they haven't uh, gotten down a gene that causes PTSD, you know. And even with those that do get PTSD, even if two people walked out with PTSD, the way it would manifest for those two people would be totally different. You know, one might become an alcoholic while the other one might become depressed and then go get help. It's, it's crazy. And until people understand how complicated it is and what it does to people, which is why I'm, I thought, okay, a series, because this could be a series that would go on for a really long time because of how many traumas exist and how many ways people cope or it manifests. And thankfully now, how many ways you can start to heal yourself or get help. Now they're starting to come up with really good, you know, proven systems that help with specifically PTSD. So it's, yeah, it's just different for everyone. And I think that you have to show the reality of that in order for to, to really get, drive the point home that it is that, it is that difficult. Um, and it is something that needs to be addressed. It's been really taboo. I think, I think mental health in general has been such a taboo subject, especially in America. Um, and PTSD has been, you know, I mean, back in the Vietnam War, they, they just called it, you know, the war sickness. And, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, dad gets the shakes because 
because he has these flashbacks and you know but he's fine you know no he's not <laughs> so you know it's like the more people can understand other people and it's it's the same for you know black lives matter or people in the lgbtq group that are trying to get people to understand them that don't it's just trying to communicate here is our truth we just want you to understand. You don't have to like it. You don't even have to agree with us. We just want you to respect and understand it. And I think that film and TV are, and music are mediums and writing. They're all mediums that can help bridge that gap. On that same hand, there are also mediums that have had a lot of abuse of drugs, abuse of things, overdoses, deaths, mm -hmm. due to PTSD and this mental health. So is art, does art help people through PTSD or does it create a deeper hole for some people? Uh, both. <laughs> Again, I think it depends on the person. It's case by case. Um, up until recently, treatment of actors, especially young actors, um, was horrible. Like they were used and abused by studios and systems and, you know, directors, all of that, and then spit out and expected to you know, survive um, its own form of PTSD, really, you know, um, I think that we are finally starting to realize that about Hollywood and film, the film industry, and really trying to make changes towards having a much better on set mentality, and a much better long term relationship with studios, agencies, etc. Um, the, the power is changing, it's shifting to a very few, to, to the many. And I think that's what it needs to be um, in order for us to really have a, a collective sense of we're equals here. We're just trying to make some art, you know? Um, in the music industry, I don't feel like they have made as many strides. I see a lot of abuse going on still in the music, classical and popular music still. Um, I see artists being used up and spit out all the time. And I think part of that, it has to do with now that I've moved into more role of, of the leadership positions and kind of the, in, in more control than I was as an actress, just an actress or singer, I can see how easy it is to want to just take that power and take that control and just do what you want with it. But you have to remember that when you're in a position of power, you also are in a position of great vulnerability and that you are in a position of being able to affect other people who are vulnerable. And you have to understand and, and approach it with compassion and empathy and sympathy, understanding that the artist is giving their all, pouring out their soul really, and leaving it on the, on the stage or on the set for everyone to criticize and scrutinize including yourself. And you have to understand that perspective and not take it, take advantage of it because um, it, you can really mess someone up, you know, with, with a few words, if you're in a position of power, you should be always cognizant and, and aware of what you're saying and how the delivery is coming across. Um, and then as an actress or musician, the vulnerable, you know, you, you have to have a sense that unless you're a child actor and then it's the parent's responsibility to protect them. But um, it, as, as an adult, actress and, and musician, performer, I always have to, and women, 
I always have to be cognizant of who is around me, you know, the things that they're saying to me, what's the vibe I'm getting here. If I don't feel comfortable, I'll speak up. And I didn't used to. And then I just, after the Me Too movement, it was like, you know what? (laughs) You're going to listen to me. (laughs) You know, like, this is my voice and you're using me to make your project happen. So I'm going to have a say. And, you know, I don't feel comfortable right now. I want to be a part of this project. I want to make this happen. How can we collaborate to make it so that we all get what we want here without destroying someone, you know? Um, it's gonna, it, it takes, it just takes being aware and being present and being respectful and compassionate. And unfortunately, a lot of people are drawn to Hollywood because of the power and the money, and therefore they aren't those things. And so as the person who's working for them or, you know, possibly working for them, you have to then really decide, is this someone I want to work with? You know, it's, it's pretty easy once you get into an interview and audition to understand and, and kind of get that vibe and get the sense of who this person is going to be. And they're doing the same with you, FYI. So, um, and it's, and you have to understand that it's okay to say no. So many actors fall into that. Well, directors too, and writers, I think we fall into this. I think just creatives in general, we fall into this mind frame because our, because it's gig to gig. We don't have a solid just job that's there that we're never going to get another job if we say no to this one. Or this person could ruin my career because I said no to them. That's just a bunch of crap. You know, maybe, maybe there's a small faction of people that then won't want to work with you because you said no to this person. But there's a whole other group of people that will. And maybe you don't want to work with that small faction of people if they're not going to work with you if you said no and stood up for yourself, you know? Uh, I like how you said... Go on for a long time about this. (laughs) What? I could go on for a long time about this subject. I I like it. I just like how you said the power are now vulnerable. I think that's really cool because for a long time it hasn't. And I think since the Me Too movement, it seems like the the mass has, has the power. Yes, and it's moving even more in that direction, you know, cross-sectionality, intersectionality, you know, I am a woman, but I'm white, you know, so I still have privilege. I have a friend who is a transgender black woman, and she is in the Hollywood industry, and she's also a spokesperson for for her people, you know, and she is constantly being just, you know, from all sides because of things she cannot control, you know? And she is, she eloquently and beautifully stands her ground. She is an inspiration. Her name's Ashley Marie Preston and she is such an inspiration to me. And I, I often, you know, will just listen to her speak or watch her, what she writes a lot. She writes for Vogue and things like that. And I will read her, her ideas and just understand, she helps me understand where my place is in the world and where I need more compassion and understanding and where I need to ask and demand more compassion and understanding. And it's interesting to be in that position, you know? And yeah, it's, we're, we're definitely finally becoming more cognizant of there is intersectionality, there is cross-sectionality, there are people that struggle more than we do merely because of the color of their skin or their gender or their sexual orientation. And it's not things that they chose, 
you know, it's things that they have and we should not be judging them or any of us should not be judging each other because of that and not giving them work because of it or not, not giving them the chance or the opportunity because of, because of that, you know? How, how do you feel the effect of, you know, Netflix has done this, Hulu has done this, where they put bl- black or per- people of color made movies or women made movies. How do you feel this effect or that this will affect the movie industry in your in your own personal life and your friends? It's already affecting it. It's already doing it because now we've got kids watching this is all they watch, Netflix, Hulu. This is becoming the norm for them to see black made movies, to see this, this, the movies made by people of different sexual orientations and different genders and, you know, and be loud and proud about it. You know, it was, it was an unspoken rule that men led in Hollywood for years. Unspoken, but also very loud. And that is not the rule anymore. And Netflix and Hulu are at the head of making this happen. And what's cool is that Netflix and Hulu are run, yes, there are men helping to lead it, but there are also women. There are people of color and there are people of different sexual orientations helping to run these companies. And I, uh, because of the way America is, when the big companies start endorsing things, that's when people start listening. And so I think that they have had a huge impact on, and we just look at the award ceremonies, you know, and how much Netflix and Hulu years ago, a couple, even a couple years ago, nothing. And now they're sweeping it, you know, you can tell where the viewers have gone. And now that the viewers are starting to see that, these little kids are starting to see people who represent them. And that has not happened before. And that's such an amazing thing. And that in and of itself will change society, not just the film industry, you know, that's an exciting thing for me. Yeah, that is cool to think about. That's like the Aziz Ansari joke of him being the first Indian man he's ever seen on television. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and it's it's um it's a movement that I'm really proud to be a part of, you know? And it's not <laughs> not happening fast enough. It should have happened a long time ago, but at least it's happening now. You know? So and I get to be a part of it. And yet again, film and television and stage. You've seen what Broadway has done, even when they've been dark, what they have been able, the cast of Hamilton and then the voting process. I mean, look at what they've done. And it's amazing to me that all all of us, all the artists, you know, we were told, shut it down. And we basically said, no, (laughs) nope. We're gonna do something else. Let's just start using our voices for other things. Okay. Change isn't happening the way we want it to. Let's figure out a way to make our voices louder. You know, I love art for that reason. I completely agree. I feel like that's a very hopeful note to end on. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, thank you. This has been really cool and exciting. And I just thank Off the Hook Arts for just existing <laughs> because you are helping artists be able to get our voices out there, you know, and be able to participate and be a part of this change and this wonderful movement towards, you know, having everyone's voice be heard, so. Well, I wanna thank you, cause coming from, I'm a junior at Colorado State. So this is my internship. Nice. So, and it's, you know, my dream is to be a creative writer, or be in movies or something. So to see someone, especially a woman, 
do so much. It's very inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, you know, you just, you just put one foot in front of the other. No, no matter how hard it is, if your gut's telling you to do something, you just have to keep doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. Have a great weekend and uh, keep, keep making great art. I'm excited. Thank you. You too. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. Hey, bye. Bye. If you want to learn more about Off the Hook Arts, our Arts Alcove, or if you would be interested in submitting a piece to the Arts Alcove, check out our social media pages listed in the description below. Thank you so much for joining us today, and tune in next week for another Arts Alcove podcast.